It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of alcoholism and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Quote, she was a tall, slender girl with black hair, a brain as steady as her own dark eyes, and a history that was nobody's business. She came to Nassau as an agent for Haig and McTavish's Scotch whiskey. No one knew from where. She made no secret of her background, but she told an entirely different tale to everyone who asked. She was born in California. She had been born in India. She was a gypsy. She had been raised in the Middle West. You could take your choice. Nassau was not the best place in those days for attractive, unprotected women. But though she was the former, she certainly was not the latter. Members of the rum mob who drew their own conclusions concerning her and then tried to operate accordingly probably will recall the breathtaking fury she could show, and one or two must remember the pistol jammed into their ribs by way of making things clear, end quote. This was how one whiskey smuggler described Gertrude Lithgow, the most notorious female rum runner during the Prohibition era. Confident and glamorous, Gertrude quickly proved herself in the male-dominated liquor trade, She had so much success as a bootlegger, she was eventually crowned the Queen of the Booze Buccaneers. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals on the Parcast Network. Today, we're telling the story of Gertrude Lithgow, a secretary from the Midwest who became one of Prohibition's most notorious bootleggers. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. During the era of prohibition in America, Gertrude Lithgow ran a successful liquor wholesale business out of Nassau, the capital of the Bahamas. As the only woman in the bootlegger game there, Gertrude made headlines when, in 1923, she sailed with Captain Bill McCoy to run whiskey from the Bahamas to the United States. 
By the time she was arrested in 1926, Gertrude had become a millionaire by supplying Dry America with thousands of bottles of alcohol. This week, we'll discuss Gertrude's childhood and chart her journey to the Bahamas, where she began her lucrative liquor empire. Next week, we'll see how a shipwreck and a very public arrest convinced the Bahama Queen to relinquish her crown. Gertrude Lithgow was born on March 1, 1888, in Bowling Green, Ohio, the youngest of 10 children. Her parents, Charles and Catherine Lithgow, were English and Scottish, respectively. Charles owned and ran the Lithgow Glass Factory alongside his brother, John. They made hand-blown glassware, like mason jars, beer bottles, and druggists' flasks. Commoner and Glassworker, a trade paper, estimated that all of the items produced in the Lithgow factory could make a mountain that stood 4,000 feet high. But according to Gertrude's memoirs, tragedy struck the Lithgow family business when she was just two years old. In early March of 1890, a fire destroyed the Lithgow glass factory. Gertrude said that her father was crushed by the loss and immediately set off to find the perfect location for a rebuild, leaving Catherine alone with their large brood. While Charles was out of town, Catherine learned that their daughter, Sarah, had developed permanent hearing loss as the result of an illness. Gertrude's memoirs don't specify which illness her sister had, but according to the American Speech-Language Hearing Association, diseases like measles, mumps, chickenpox, meningitis, or influenza could all cause acquired hearing loss. Then, in 1892, when Gertrude was four, her mother, Catherine, died from tuberculosis. Charles did not have the resources to care for 10 children by himself, so the three youngest ones were placed in institutions. Sarah attended a school for the deaf, while Gertrude and her brother, Hugh, were sent to an orphanage. Gertrude had bleak memories of the orphanage. Boys and girls were placed in separate facilities. She saw Hugh on only one occasion, during an orphanage-wide picnic. The stress of being alone in a scary environment so soon after her mother's death caused Gertrude to start wetting the bed. Before we dig into Gertrude's psychology, just a quick disclaimer. Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Sammy. According to psychiatrist Dora Black, bedwetting is a common symptom of separation anxiety. Infants and toddlers need to be raised in a warm, secure environment with known caretakers who can interact with them in a sensitive way. When a young child is separated from their parent or caretaker, they can be overcome with feelings of detachment and despair. After a few years in the orphanage, Hannah Lithgow, an aunt with no husband or children of her own, took Gertrude and Hugh to live with her in Greenfield, Indiana. Gertrude relished the attention of her doting aunt, who baked the children fresh bread and brought them to a local swimming hole. While living at Aunt Hannah's, Gertrude developed an alarming habit of frequently wandering off and disappearing for hours at a time. Once, after searching for her all day, her frantic Aunt Hannah finally found Gertrude at the beauty parlor, calmly having her hair curled. Hannah marched the child back home before the beautician could finish the job. Running away is a common way for bereaved children to process their grief. 
Psychologist Dr. Alan D. Wolfelt explained that their misbehavior commonly masks feelings of abandonment and low self-esteem. At this time, the child needs to be given boundaries so that they may feel secure. After spending time in the orphanage, where Gertrude believed no one cared about her, she now felt the need to test her Aunt Hannah's love. If she ran away, would anyone come looking? Gertrude's walkabouts got to be such a problem that the police even suggested that her aunt place a tag around Gertrude's neck that noted her name and address. In 1897, when Gertrude was nine, Charles sent for his family to join him in Ligoti, Indiana. He was beginning construction on a new glass factory there. Little Gertrude enjoyed playing at the construction site, climbing through the smokestack and jumping in the piles of sand that would be used for making glass. With all 10 Lithgow children now living under the same roof, 21-year-old Margaret, the eldest, gave up a burgeoning modeling career to take care of her siblings, while their father focused on the new factory. It was actually the third factory he'd opened after the fire at the Bowling Green facility. Charles and his brother, John, had previously opened and closed the Lithgow Brothers' glass house in Upland, Indiana, and the Lithgow Glass Works in Van Buren, Indiana. A trade paper of the Times said that the businesses had failed due to mismanagement. This stemmed from Charles's drinking habits. He had developed alcoholism in the wake of his wife's death, and it had affected both businesses. As a result, John Lithgow did not partner with his brother for this new venture in Ligoti. Gertrude wrote that her father was distant and unreliable, often losing a great deal of money during one of his frequent drinking spells. Whenever Charles disappeared, it was Gertrude's job to retrieve him from the saloon. Gertrude recounted how the smell of stale beer and the loud talking of bar patrons made her tremble. She hated asking the bartender if anyone had seen her father. According to Edwards' treatment of drinking problems, children of alcoholics often experience high levels of stress, loneliness, low self-esteem, and fears of abandonment. These are all symptoms that Gertrude reflected on in her memoirs. She described herself as a wild, undisciplined, homely urchin who was made to feel like an outcast by her unaffectionate family. She often cried herself to sleep at night because no one in her family seemed to care about her. By 1902, the Ligoti factory was failing, just like all of Charles's previous ventures. The family relocated to Anderson, Indiana, and 14-year-old Gertrude was able to attend a parochial high school. There, she excelled in her classes and displayed a talent for music. The school nuns trained her in violin, piano, pipe organ, singing, and elocution. She loved anything pertaining to the stage and happily devoted hours to rehearsal. Though she was thriving in school, Gertrude contended with health problems during this time. One morning when she woke up, she discovered a rash on her face that wouldn't go away. It stayed there for years. A doctor tried prescribing medicine to cure it, but the treatment ruined her digestion. Gertrude stopped eating and became a walking skeleton. But her red face and gaunt appearance didn't prevent her from being given lead roles in the school plays. She credits her time on stage with helping her get over her inferiority complex. 
According to psychologist Carl Rogers, children of alcoholics exhibit more signs of low self-esteem than their peers. When children have to be caretakers for their alcoholic parents, they blame themselves for not being able to control their parents' drinking. This leads to feelings of worthlessness and low self-esteem. Gertrude was already at risk for this because of her time in the orphanage, feeling like no one in her family cared about her. And while it's typical for teenagers to exhibit occasional symptoms of low self-esteem, for children of alcoholics, these self-critical feelings can be overwhelming. If not properly addressed, a child with low self-esteem will have difficulty forming relationships later on. Even with the confidence she found on stage, this may have been true for Gertrude, who never married. After graduating high school in 1906, 18-year-old Gertrude enrolled in a year-long secretarial sciences program. Once she received her stenography certificate, Gertrude moved to Indianapolis, where her sister Mary was working as a maid. Gertrude found a job as a bookkeeper in an office during the day. At night, she had a contract to sing at the local movie theater. In the silent film era, song lyrics were projected on the screen in between feature presentations, and a vocalist led the audience in a sing-along. One week, Gertrude was told to learn the popular song, I Wonder Who's Kissing Her Now. Charles, who was visiting from Lagodi, overheard his daughter rehearsing and objected. The song was from the point of view of a young Lothario. He forbade Gertrude from singing it in public. But Gertrude valued her contract with the movie theater more than her father's opinion. She wasn't going to let his outrage ruin her reputation as a professional. When she performed the song anyway, Charles didn't speak to her for months. The long hours of bookkeeping during the day and singing at night eventually wore Gertrude down. One night during a performance, she collapsed on stage. A doctor suggested she take some time off to rest and recover, so she decided to book a vacation to Scotland to visit her mother's family. In 1911, it was unusual for a 23-year-old woman to travel alone without a chaperone. It's surprising that conservative Charles Lithgow didn't try to forbid the trip. Instead, he arranged for a distant relative to meet Gertrude in New York and see that she made it safely onto the ship. Gertrude assumed that this kind gesture meant that the rift between her and her father was over. Gertrude loved life at sea. She marveled at the aurora borealis as they sailed around the coast of Newfoundland. As the ship rolled on the waves, Gertrude felt a thrill that she didn't know she had been missing. When they docked in Greenock, Scotland, Gertrude was surprised that she felt sad to be back on land. Gertrude spent several pleasant months in Scotland, touring Glasgow and Edinburgh. However, the best part of the trip was meeting her mother's relatives and learning about the woman she never knew herself. Gertrude was delighted to hear that she had inherited her mother's singing voice and hearty laugh. The Scottish aunts and uncles all doted on her, and it seemed like for a brief moment, Gertrude had found the affectionate family she'd always wanted. She was loath to leave them behind and return to America at the end of 1911. A few months after she returned, Gertrude was faced with another dark stroke of luck. Charles Lithgow died on February 4, 1912. The 63-year-old had caught pneumonia while traveling for work. 
Then, two months later, Gertrude's beloved brother, Hugh, also passed away. He had been living in Arizona, trying to recuperate from tuberculosis, but ultimately succumbed to the disease. Gertrude said that life was an empty shell without her father and brother. She became depressed and abandoned things she loved, like playing music. She decided it was time for a change and made plans to move out west. Coming up, we'll follow Gertrude's journey to the West Coast, where she embraced independence that was atypical for women of her era. Now, back to the story. In 1912, 24-year-old Gertrude Lithgow was still reeling from the deaths of her father and brother. With no other family left in Indianapolis, Gertrude felt no reason to stay in the Midwest. She boarded a train to California, hoping she would find new friends and happiness in the Golden State. In a time when young women were expected to marry and start families, Gertrude showed no signs of settling down. Over the next few years, she traveled up and down the West Coast, never staying in one location for very long. In 1914, the 26-year-old was living and working on Figueroa Street in Los Angeles. A few months later, she was living 15 miles away in San Pedro, working as a stenographer for the railroad. In early 1915, Gertrude accepted a job as a public stenographer at the Palace Hotel in San Francisco. That year, the city was hosting the Panama Pacific International Exhibition, a World's Fair that attracted millions of visitors. The hotel teemed with guests who were eager to view the wonders that were on display at the exhibition, like the Tower of Jewels, a 43-story tower covered in more than 100,000 pieces of crystal and colored glass. Gertrude's vivacious personality made her popular with the hotel guests, many of whom actually worked at the exhibition. One such guest ran the Wild Animal Pavilion, where five new lion cubs had just been born. He promised Gertrude that if she came to the exhibit, she would be allowed to hold one of the cubs. But when she arrived at the pavilion, Gertrude was shocked to find the guest holding the lead of a skinny camel. The guest had conveniently forgotten to mention that in exchange for seeing the lion cubs, Gertrude was expected to ride the camel through a Streets of Cairo exhibit, styled as an Egyptian princess. Because of her jet black hair and dark olive skin tone, strangers had previously assumed that she was foreign. The hotel guest knew that if he said that Gertrude was a genuine Egyptian, most of the tourists would believe him, and his exhibit would be more popular. Gertrude was mortified as a handler led her and the pitiful-looking camel around the exhibit. To make matters worse, a group of her co-workers was invited to see the spectacle. From then on, they called her Cleopatra, or Cleo for short. In August of 1915, Gertrude began to feel restless again. She took an extended leave of absence from her job at the Palace Hotel and asked her friend, Lenora Gorel, to join her in Hawaii. At that time, it would have taken five days for a steamship to travel from San Francisco to Honolulu. Unfortunately, the last-minute nature of their trip meant that the passenger steamships were already booked. The women decided to improvise and bought seats on the R.P. Rithit, an out-of-date windjammer sailboat. This mode of transportation extended their time at sea by another two weeks. 
Apparently, it was so unusual for regular people to book passage on a sailboat that the Honolulu Star wrote about the trip on August 28, 1915. The headline read, Two San Francisco girls come to Honolulu on sailing ship. And the article stated that after their Pacific voyage, the women would stay at the YWCA. The paper reported that Gertrude thought traveling by sailing vessel had been splendid fun and expressed fears that sailing might become a thing of the past. Gertrude loved Hawaii so much that she ended up staying there for an entire year, taking on freelance secretarial work when she needed extra money. While she was in Hawaii, Gertrude wrote to her older brother, Joe, about the exciting things she was experiencing there like a celebratory luau for the birthday of the recently deposed Hawaiian queen. Without telling her, Joe had these letters reprinted in the local newspaper. For a few weeks, residents of Evansville, Indiana, kept up to date on Gertrude's Hawaiian adventures. In her memoirs, Gertrude said that she was embarrassed by this sudden notoriety. If she had known her letters were going to be printed, she wouldn't have been so frank about the people around her. After a year of tropical heat, Gertrude decided to explore Alaska. She spent a few blissful weeks admiring glaciers and playing with sled dogs, but her trip was cut short on April 6, 1917, when the United States entered World War I. It was no longer safe to travel, so Gertrude returned to San Francisco. Soon she was back at her post at the Palace Hotel, there, she met a British businessman. He was in the process of trying to secure contracts with lumber yards in the Pacific Northwest, planning to ship the wood to Europe. Once the war ended, he stood to make a significant amount of money selling the lumber to rebuild war-torn France. Impressed with her professionalism, the businessman offered Gertrude a position to manage his London office. She accepted and set sail for London in the spring of 1919, shortly after the World War I armistice. Gertrude, now 31, had no idea that she was moving to a country that had been completely devastated by the war. Like most Americans, Gertrude's previous exposure to the devastation of World War I was minimal. All she had really seen were newsreel images of destroyed buildings and soldiers marching to a battlefield. The real-life experience of post-war London was grim. Gertrude lamented that she had to register with the police in order to receive ration tickets for bread, meat, sugar, butter, and cheese. She was disappointed that historic monuments were still barricaded with sandbags and barbed wire. Everywhere she went, she met veterans who were disabled as a result of the horrific war. To distract herself from the gloom around her, Gertrude threw herself into her new job. She gained valuable experience in sales, shipping, and international finance. An article about her life reported that she negotiated contracts with North American lumber firms. Soon, the firm expanded beyond lumber. Gertrude accompanied her bosses on trips to Germany and Belgium, where they hammered out deals to buy a wide range of products, from sausage casings to enamel bathtubs. The company decided to open a New York office in December of 1920, and 32-year-old Gertrude was sent to run it. Her memoirs don't specify why she was given this new responsibility, but it's possible that Gertrude was given the job simply because she was the only American citizen in the firm. 
In New York, Gertrude spent three months chasing a contract with a supplier of hardwood substitutes. When the deal finally closed and the new stock was purchased, Gertrude learned that the boat she'd arranged to transport the product back to Europe had fallen through. She had planned to use the American Shipping Service, a branch of the Merchant Marines that trained inexperienced sailors. By using student boats, Gertrude's firm could ship their product at an extremely low rate. But the program had been developed to train sailors for World War I. Now that the war was over, the program was shutting down. This meant that Gertrude's firm would now have to pay a premium to privately ship the goods. They couldn't afford this additional expense, and the deal fell through. By the end of 1920, the New York office was shuttered. There are a few different accounts as to what happened next. The Winnipeg Free Press claimed that it was Gertrude who gave her bosses the idea to get into the liquor trade. Prohibition had just begun in America. The article quoted her saying, I suggested to my employers that much money was to be made selling whiskey to smugglers who were doing their best to keep America from dying of thirst. But according to the Fairfield Daily Ledger, Gertrude was poached by a rival import-export firm to be their representative in the West Indies. Worried about her prospects after the New York office closed, she accepted the job at once, without asking any questions. Later, a detailed letter arrived that explained that she would be handling the firm's shipment of liquors to the Bahamas for the purpose of reselling to the wets of the United States. Gertrude's memoir tells a less exciting story. While living in New York, she had invested in some stocks that had crashed. When the New York office closed, Gertrude was broke and in need of a miracle. When the firm asked her to be their representative in the Bahamas, she felt that she had no other options. Gertrude naturally had reservations about profiting from the substance that had caused her father so much anguish. Eventually, she reasoned that because alcohol had taken her family's fortune away, it was time that she was repaid for the misery it had caused. In her memoirs, she said she realized, it's not the use, but the abuse, that makes indulging in alcohol a problem. She knew that she couldn't turn somebody into an alcoholic just by selling them spirits. So, in 1921, 33-year-old Gertrude set sail for the Bahamas and her next adventure. The dilapidated island was still recovering from an economic depression caused by the collapse of the ocean sponge industry. Local law enforcement turned a blind eye to the bootleggers and gangsters who made the Bahamas their hideout. They were happy to profit from the Americans who used the island to skirt around prohibition laws. In 1921, the New York Herald estimated that there was $10 million worth of liquor being stored in Nassau. That would be over $140 million today. When Gertrude disembarked from her ship in Nassau, she was immediately swarmed by dozens of Native children who were hoping to be paid to carry her bags. Used to the sophistication of London and Paris, Gertrude wondered how she would ever survive in this small, neglected place. Coming up, Gertrude fights to be the first woman in the Bahamas granted a liquor license. Now, back to the story. In 1921, 33-year-old Gertrude Lithgow arrived in the Bahamas, ready to establish a new liquor business for the import-export firm she worked for. 
Gertrude had traveled all over the world at this point, but nothing would prepare her for the contradiction that was Nassau. There was a huge disparity of wealth between the native Bahamians and the American smugglers. Writer H.D. Winton Wigley described the island's almost Las Vegas-like ambiance in his book With the Whiskey Smugglers, saying, the magical atmosphere of easy fortune-making is like an infective madness. You feel that you're wandering about in a dazzling gold field with riches ready to fall into your hands. As a single woman living alone in a city full of gangsters, Gertrude could never let her guard down. Crime bosses were allowed to walk through the streets with their gun-toting flunkies, while the local police only carried billy sticks. The hotel Gertrude was staying in always kept its front door unlocked, even though dangerous men were known to drunkenly wander past at all hours of the night. Once, an intruder broke into Gertrude's hotel room and tried to rape her. She thwarted off the attack by pretending she had a gun under her pillow. The next morning, Gertrude found herself a new place to stay and bought herself a real gun. Framed by palm trees, the Lucerne was a stately hotel in the middle of Nassau that was renowned for its refreshing cocktails and homemade lemon pie. It was also unofficially known as Bootlegger's Headquarters. A petite, white-haired woman that everyone called Mother ran the Lucerne. Known for always carrying her two Pekingese dogs under each arm, Mother was a fierce businesswoman who knew the details about every person who stayed in her hotel. She also had the distinction of being the only person in the colony that the gangsters truly respected. Mother took to Gertrude immediately and soon became her mentor and confidant. Gertrude needed help getting established in Nassau, so the firm sent out a young man who could work as her partner. She never mentioned his name in her memoirs, probably because after their first meeting, Gertrude was less than impressed. She found her new co-worker lazy and condescending. Still, she was determined to get along with him, even though he refused to discuss his ideas for procuring business or building up clientele. It's unclear whether his silence was due to Gertrude being a woman or if he was just generally recalcitrant. To get established in Nassau, the pair had to apply for a liquor license. Typically, licenses were only issued to men, but Gertrude insisted that both of their names be printed on the certificate. However, when Gertrude went to pick up the license, she was informed that her associate had already obtained it. She asked to see a copy of the document and was shocked when she saw that her name had not been included. Furious, Gertrude set off to confront her co-worker. She found him in a bar, treating his friends to drinks and waving the license in the air, saying, This shows she's not my partner. She's only my typist. Gertrude would not tolerate this rude behavior. She marched the man right down to the licensing office and made sure that the certificate was corrected. Soon after this incident, Gertrude learned that her partner had cheated the firm out of a large amount of money. He sold a shipment of 1,000 cases of the company's liquor at the price of four pounds a case. When he recorded the transaction, he reported that he had sold it for only three pounds a case, pocketing the difference. When she discovered the fraud, a furious Gertrude got her gun and confronted him in the barber shop where he was getting a shave. They took the argument out into the street, and Gertrude told him that if he wasn't on the next boat to England, she'd probably shoot him. 
She sent a telegram berating her bosses at the firm for sending such a partner and told them that they could deal with the lost returns. With her partner gone, this also meant Gertrude had to reapply for a liquor license in her name alone. After filing all of the appropriate paperwork, she learned from some island gossips that the court was going to refuse her application. While there wasn't a law that prohibited women from having their own liquor license, the island had never actually issued one before. Gertrude was obligated to appear before the liquor board and plead her case. According to her memoirs, an official argued that Gertrude was unfit to hold a liquor license because she carried a gun and kept too many lovers. It's certainly ironic that Gertrude was forced to defend her moral character in a town that was run by gangsters. In an article in the Winnipeg Free Press, Gertrude hypothesized that the official who objected to her license may have been paid off by her business rivals. Although the official was a friend of one of Gertrude's competitors, there's no evidence that her claim was actually true. Throughout the hearing, Gertrude kept a level head. Although she probably did keep a gun for self-defense, she assured the officials that she was simply carrying the pistol for a friend. And her love life? That was nobody's business. Gertrude managed to convince the board that she was a competent businesswoman and was awarded the license. Now that she was legitimate, it was time for Gertrude to find buyers for her whiskey. Again, she found her gender to be an impediment. Liquor wholesalers were expected to show buyers a good time while they were in port in Nassau. Gertrude's male counterparts took the rum runners to watch scantily clad women shimmy dance in bars. They even hosted evening beach parties where they hired native women to dance naked around the bonfire. As a respectable woman, Gertrude wasn't allowed to attend one of these parties. She thought she could avoid this obstacle by going around the bootleggers and selling her whiskey directly to the American businessmen who bankrolled the rum runners' excursions. These men liked to play dice in the Lucerne's bar, making them easy to approach. Unfortunately, the financiers refused to meet with her. Gertrude said that the men had a strict no-skirts policy. She described them as ultra-conservative, suspicious, and very prejudiced towards a woman in the game. According to Gertrude, the men were also wary of her motives. Many refused to trust her because they thought she was a government spy, working a sting. Some of the bootleggers told Mother that they would get rid of Gertrude if she allowed her to stay at the Lucerne. Mother didn't cave to their threats, and neither did Gertrude. In 1922, Gertrude learned that she was getting a new partner, a brother of one of the firm's directors. She was optimistic that he'd be able to help ease the island's suspicion of her. Unfortunately, this partner was also a disappointment. He was a silly little man who spoke in a ridiculously posh British accent. Even though he was now in a tropical climate, he insisted on wearing a three-piece suit every day. He was frequently ill and often too weak or overwhelmed to work. The hardened bootleggers on the island thought he was a character straight out of vaudeville. Gertrude started referring to him as the Duke. The Duke's arrival did little to help Gertrude's sales. Together, they approached buyers in the Lucerne Bar and offered them samples from a shipment of high-quality rye they had just received. While everyone who tasted the liquor admitted it was good, 
Gertrude still couldn't make a sale. She knew she had to think quickly, or the firm might withdraw from the operation entirely. Gertrude's fortune changed when a rum-running schooner called the Arethusa came into port. The ship was captained by William Bill McCoy, an honest man and excellent sailor who had the respect of the whole island. Bill had been rum-running since Prohibition began in 1920 and is credited with creating Rum Row, a line of motorboats and fishing vessels that anchored 15 miles away from the maritime limit of the United States. There, they docked for several weeks and sold their products from the deck without too much interference from the Coast Guard. Under cover of night, buyers in small contact boats approached the Arethusa, loaded up on bottles, and quickly raced the liquor back to shore. From there, the cargo would be delivered to waiting trucks that delivered the contraband to speakeasies run by gangsters like Big Bill Dwyer, Charles Lucky Luciano, and Al Capone. The phrase, the real McCoy, is derived from the fact that Bill only sold the purest liquor. Unlike his competitors, he never diluted his product. It was always the real thing. Gertrude had never met Bill previously, but knew of his sterling reputation. She liked that he was a fair man who took pride in selling only high-quality products. Gertrude had also heard that Bill avoided those wild beach parties that she was never allowed to attend. He was a teetotaler, voluntarily sober, and had no desire to celebrate his successes. His policy was to rush into port, load up as quickly as possible, and then get out. Gertrude asked the Duke to bring Bill a sample of their best rye. She was sure that once he had tasted it, he could be convinced to add it to his cargo. Unfortunately, Gertrude didn't realize that Bill never drank. But still, Bill called on Gertrude the next morning. She was pleased to see that he was a tall, handsome man with fair hair and blue eyes. Dressed all in white, he seemed to be the complete opposite of all the rough bootleggers she had met so far. According to Gertrude, the attraction was instant. Quote, something hit me, hit me hard. Bill explained to Gertrude that because her product was so superior to everything else on the island, the other wholesalers were doing their best to freeze her out of the business. Bootleggers were being bribed by the other liquor suppliers to stay away from Gertrude. The only way she'd be able to sell her rye was if she took it to Rum Row herself. He offered Gertrude the remaining cargo space left on the Arethusa. If she accompanied her product, she could sell it directly to the contact boats that visited Rum Row. By cutting out the middleman, she would make a larger profit. Since Bill technically was the middleman, it's strange that he would make Gertrude this proposition. By allowing Gertrude to take up valuable cargo space with liquor he couldn't sell, he was technically losing money. And because she wasn't an experienced sailor like the rest of his crew, she was also a liability. Bill knew he couldn't buy Gertrude's stock without incurring the wrath of her rival wholesalers. But by allowing Gertrude to join him on his trip to Rum Row, Bill was able to help her without directly going against the gangster's orders. He was only transporting her liquor, not selling it, so he was in the clear. It seems strange that Bill would go to so much trouble on behalf of a stranger, but Gertrude mentioned that when she first saw Bill, she was immediately attracted to him. Maybe for Bill, the feeling was mutual. 
Later on, he told a writer that he found Gertrude to be a fascinating, plucky spitfire. The rough waters of Rum Row were no place for a lady like Gertrude, but something about Bill's demeanor made her trust him. She checked in with Mother, who would certainly know if Bill had any skeletons in his closet, but she assured Gertrude that he was a man of fine character. He wouldn't let anything happen to her while on board the Arethusa. Gertrude left the Duke in charge of the office and had her cargo loaded up the very same day. On July 5th, 1923, the Arethusa set sail on choppy waters. Gertrude was seasick for most of that first day. As her stomach heaved, she started second-guessing her rash decision. She didn't know any of the men on the ship. Even Bill was still a stranger. How could she know they wouldn't harm her? or steal her profits. At bedtime, Gertrude realized that she had forgotten all about sleeping arrangements. As a lady, she couldn't be expected to bunk with the rest of the crew. Bill offered to share the captain's quarters with her. She could take her choice of the cabin's two beds, and he would take the other one. A cabin boy would sleep on the floor in between them, acting as a chaperone. Bill assured her that he would only use the cabin to sleep, so she still could maintain some privacy. The way Bill described it, Gertrude and the crew had a dynamic that was reminiscent of Wendy and the Lost Boys. The men were respectful, well-behaved, and even a little shy. Normally, when they were at sea, the men showered by standing on the deck naked whenever it rained. With Gertrude on board, most men were too nervous to disrobe. In the mornings, a chef named Frenchie made it his duty to serve Gertrude breakfast in bed. For dinner, he served her special dishes that he wouldn't even give to Bill. During downtimes, the crew would gather on deck for music and dancing. Frenchie played violin and accompanied Gertrude as she sang songs from her movie theater days. The men drew her pictures and presented her with a ship in a bottle. Bill said that with Gertrude on board, they, quote, were more like a Sunday school picnic than a gang of rum runners. After six days at sea, the Arethusa arrived at Rum Row on July 11, 1923. As they dropped anchor, Bill readied his swivel machine gun. The crew would need it to protect themselves from the attempted hijackings and Coast Guard raids they were about to face. Gertrude heard Bill announce his presence through a megaphone to the nearby boats. The Arethusa was now open for business. Gertrude was officially a bootlegger. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. Next week, we'll see how Gertrude's weeks in Rum Row made her into a tabloid darling nicknamed the Bahama Queen. Then we'll see how the Queen was dethroned after a shipwreck, arrest, and very public trial. You can find more Female Criminals and all of ParCast shows on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. 
Female Criminals is written by Kate McKeer and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. 